0: Media.
1: Totally Football Show. Today, FA Cup. Would you need to be a busker doing Robin Thicke covers to get a worse collection of quarters in the Cup? Or were you quite satisfied with the weekend's fixtures? We'll be discussing all the action as Arsenal, Man United, Chelsea and Man City book their places in the semis. Also, Premier League, Villa Wolves, Nealand before the game, good, Nealand between the posts, not so much, and all the other talking points from the weekend's games. It's all in this Totally Football show in association with Paddy Power. there his cup running over how appropriate for a weekend which saw the world's oldest uh, most prestigious cup competition make its uh, very welcome return to our lives it's june 29th listener and uh, it's a brand new week and a fresh new lineup for you as well on the totally football show featuring natalie jedra of espn international hello natalie
2: hola hola
1: to you too bonjour tom williams although you're welsh so
3: so, hello, or oh, hello.
1: Yes, that's very nice. Tom, with a song, a smile, a tactical analysis perhaps today. And also with us is Daniel Storey. Hello, Daniel.
0: Hello. Boring old hello for me.
1: Oh, well, nuanced. But anyway, so FA Cup made its return. Uh, we were just having a bit of a chat. I'm suggesting that for neutrals, that wasn't the greatest set of quarterfinal matches. What do you guys think?
3: I mean, there were slow burners. I think if you were if you were being charitable, I mean there was there was late drama at Carrow Road, there was late drama at Brammer Lane as well, so they weren't completely devoid of intrigue. Mm. But uh, yes, having watched all of today's FA Cup matches and the last three back to back this afternoon, it was it was quite a long afternoon. I have to confess,
1: mm. Natalie.
2: Yeah, Newcastle and, and Manchester City, I think it was the most predictable one. But we had some excitement with Sheffield United-Arsenal, with Leicester-Chelsea. We were we had high expectations for this fixture. Uh, yeah, it was interesting. And some some late emotion on Norwich and United. So, yeah, I enjoyed it.
1: Daniel?
0: Yeah, I mean, when you wait for the FA Cup to return, we're all looking for upsets. And the reality is, is that we didn't get the upsets. And at least we have some... Kind of massive semi-finals that's the positive spin uh and despite everything despite everyone talking at length about big clubs resisting the fa cup as a prestigious trophy there they all are again hmm. does
1: arsenal getting through count as an upset or is that just people trolling on social media it is isn't it uh, so the semi-finals yeah, The semi-finals then, made up of the winners of the last six FA Cups. In fact, if you want to take that a bit further, the semi-finalists will be made up of the winners of 10 of the last 11 FA Cups. Wigan, of course, and their win in 2013, the only exception to that. The uh, fixtures will be Man United against Chelsea and Arsenal against Manchester City. And those games will be taking place in mid-July, with the final taking place on the 1st of August. What was the big story? Where would you like to start, Daniel?
0: Uh, I think it's a, it probably was a weekend in which we focus on the losing teams, and I think Leicester is probably the biggest story. Um, right. Every time you watch them at the moment, it feels like they they're either getting worse or um, making it easier for their opponents. And it was a poor game. Both sides were incredibly sloppy in possession, I thought. But Chelsea were were less bad than Leicester, and at the moment, Leicester seem to be going one way and. From talking about third being kind of well within their grasp, it now looks like even sixth is is starting to make them sweat. And if they miss out on the Champions League this season, then you know they might have taken it at the start. But Brendan Rodgers will be incredibly annoyed with his with his team's underperformance.
1: Mm. They currently have a six point margin over Man United in sixth place in the league but you're not alone to be wondering what exactly is happening with the Foxes. Vivek Surindam saying, why are Leicester struggling? Why can't Rogers ever seem to be a consistent manager? People beginning to ask whether something has happened behind the scenes there, why the relationship maybe with the players or they don't seem to be as, as inspired as they were before.
3: I think it's probably the case that teams of have- Figured them out a little bit, and you know you look at their results since the restart. their three games without a win, but it, it started well before that. I think the rot set in for Leicester earlier this year, um, probably the you know sort of turn of the year, if not even sooner. Um, having said that, if you look at you look at their XG for the first part of the season, there is a suggestion that they were outperforming as it was, um, but. You know, we know that, that Leicester's great goal threat is Jamie Vardy galloping into space. And if, if teams sit a bit deeper and deny him that space, it, it, it takes away an awful lot of Leicester's attacking threat. Vardy's gone off the boil because chances aren't being created for him. James Madison, I know he didn't play today, but he's not really looked at it for a little while. Same for Yuri Tielemans. Harvey Barnes ended um, the sort of pre-lockdown period in a decent run of form, but hasn't looked the same player since we came back. Um, I think they're missing Ricardo Pereira as well. Um, I know he's you know only a right back, but he's a really um, important element in the, in the way that they play, and there's you know there's no one else in their squad who can who can replicate what he brings. And, I, you know, I'd, I'd be worried um, if I was a Leicester fan because they, they started the season so well. Um, you know, they picked up the, the momentum they'd had the previous season and carried it on. They looked shoo ins for a top four finish, um, you know, around the turn of the year. People were even talking about could they even get into the title picture? Whereas now if they, if they cling on and they get top four by the skin of their teeth, I think their fans are all signed for that right now.
2: What caught my attention as well uh, regarding Leicester is uh, we we talk about Vardy not scoring as much as he he used to in the first half of the season, but there were other uh, players who dropped form, like uh, Ben Chilwell. He was brilliant uh, and he's not... As brilliant as he was in the in the first half of the season, even Madison, uh, he he has some very good spells, but he's uh, more inconsistent compared to what he was uh, at the beginning of the season. So yeah, it's hard to to really. F- figure out what happened with Leicester in the past few months, but it's uh, curious to see uh, how things changed, especially for Brandon Rodgers. I remember uh, when Arsenal sacked uh, Unai Emery, everybody wanted Brandon Rodgers and now uh, people are starting to question if he is the uh, this manager that was so praised earlier in the season. I, I think we should give him uh, time and credit for, for the positives that uh, Leicester had this season.
0: Without wanting to make Leicester fans feel completely glum. Their central defensive partnership also looks really shaky at the moment. Kagalas was, I think, probably the best non-Virgil van Dijk central defender in the Premier League in the first half of the season, but him and Johnny Evans just seem to have lost that concentration. That The Barkley goal was a perfect example. There's just a massive space in between them in the middle, which Barkley kind of wanders into and finishes with ease in the end. And that just wasn't happening earlier in the season. The passing out from the back seems sloppy. There was a, there was one moment where Kasper Schmeichel made a bad pass. I think Johnny Evans made a bad pass. And, and then a Leicester player kind of shanks it out for a corner. And that just wasn't happening early season. So... I don't know if they need to go back to square one because their problem is they they kind of really only have one attacking plan with Vardy there. Ian Nacho's not up to it, I don't think. So it's hard to see really what they can change.
2: I I think uh, in terms of what they can change, uh, a deeper squad maybe. I think that's what Leicester should be aiming for next season.
1: We're off on a bit of a downer so far. So let's be nice and positive (laughs) about Chelsea because it was a bright start in this game from the Foxes and then Frank made changes and they paid off.
2: Yes there there was a clear lack of pace on first half uh, from both sides but uh Frank Lampard we 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 have to uh highlight that Ever since the the start of the season, he always uh, showed courage in his decisions. And again, he he showed courage uh, making three changes uh, on halftime, putting more experienced players to play, and that uh, paid off for him. So merits to, to Frank Lampard. I know I know Ross Barkley did a, a very good match, but I think the 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 man of the match here is Frank Lampard.
3: And it's not the first time since the restart that Lampard's made changes and they've borne fruit. I mean, the first game back at Villa Park, uh, he sent on Christian Pulisic about 10 minutes into the second half. He scores equaliser within five minutes and has a really positive impact. And I suppose on the one hand, it's it's a positive that Lampard is making changes that are having... Um, uh, uh, a positive effect on his team's performances as we saw today but then you also think well is that also a sign that he's not getting his initial team selections right uh, but you know credit to him I think making a triple substitution at half time even in this age of, of quintuple substitutions is still a really ballsy move particularly in a game that could quite easily have gone to extra time um, and I think it was an acceptance that that, that Billy Gilmore um, wasn't having a great time of it. We were all really impressed by him when he came into the team just before um, the lockdown, and particularly that game against Liverpool in the previous round of the cup, where he absolutely bossed it and you know left us all open mouthed. And, and he just didn't really look on his game right from the start today. When he gave the ball away for the first time after about ten seconds, and that basically set the the template for his first half. Um, and you know, I, I think in fairness to Lampard, he probably realised that the chances of Gilmore playing his way out of it in the second half were, were unlikely, so he, he cut his losses and, and, and brought him off. But the players that he brought on, um, as piliquetta Kovacic and particularly Ross Barkley, were the ones who, who turned the game around. Um, so, yeah, credit to Lampard for, for realising that, that things weren't working out and, and finding a way of correcting them.
1: Mm. They're on a bit of a roll right now, aren't they, Chelsea? With that, that victory over Man City in the week, now they're into the Cup semi-finals. Of course, there's all the great news about big-name players arriving. And, and on the subject of actually... Uh, Contracts and building the squad for next year. Exciting to see that Marco van Hinkle has signed a new one-year contract with Chelsea. He last played for the club in September 2013.
3: Yeah, it's a bit of an odd one, really. I mean, he's had some some really bad knee injuries. Um, he went out on loan a couple of times. I don't think he's kicked a football for anyone uh, in the last two years. And I, I get the impression that Chelsea have thought, well, you know, particularly in these... Difficult times. We we can't really, um, you know, just cut our losses with this guy who's had such such misfortune. So maybe give him one last year to, to get over his last injury and, and try and play his way back into a bit of fitness. And you know, maybe he'll go out on loan again. I don't know. But yeah, bit of a curious one. A very sort of Chelsea thing as well to have a player knocking around who's not played a game for uh, seven years for you.
0: Yeah, it reminds me of uh, their goalkeeper Mateusz Delac who was finally sold in two thousand eighteen but had been at Chelsea for eight years without playing a single game. And I tweeted to say that when he'd signed another new contract and within ten minutes was blocked by Mateusz Delac on Twitter, which is a was a bit of a shame. Made me feel really guilty about exposing I mean, as if as if it was a surprise to him that he hadn't played for Chelsea.
3: Had you had you tagged him, or was he was he vanity search? No, no,
0: no, no, not at all. And he didn't follow me, so fair play to him for finding it that quickly. Mm. Have you ever been
1: blocked by a footballer, Tom or Natalie?
3: Not that I'm aware of. Robbie Fowler once slid into my DMs uh, after taking exception to a tweet, but he didn't block me, so that, right. that's something.
4: You're listening to The Totally Football Show with James Richardson, part of The Athletic Podcast Network. And if you're not yet a subscriber to The Athletic, make sure you check out their coverage of each and every Premier League club by taking out a free 30-day trial by heading to theathletic.com slash totally.
1: Well, Chelsea through anyway to the FA Cup semifinals where they will be taking on a Man United... John Sands saying, is there anything more frustrating for the neutral fan than a last minute winner in extra time with a penalty shootout beckoning? It was a, I mean, I was talking about for the neutrals, not the greatest set of quarterfinals. The first half of Norwich against Man United was particularly testing.
3: Yes, it was. Uh, and I think the anticipation at the prospect of a potential penalty shootout was only heightened by the fact that between the post for Norwich, you had Tim Krul." Uh, penalty stopper extraordinaire who we all remember from the 2014 World Cup with the Netherlands and and he's already saved two Man United penalties in the same match this season and as a neutral when you've stuck with a a fairly boring game for that long you you do tend to think of a penalty shootout as something you've earned Uh, so for Harry Maguire to pop up with a winner Two minutes from time, obviously great for Man United fans, less so for anyone else who'd sat through it. Uh, and you know, uh, no pun intended, cruel as well on Norwich in that you thought having having looked out of the game after they fell behind, they did really well to come back into it, and they were really they were clinging on in quite heroic fashion. And you thought, you know, at least a penalty shootout gives them gives them a bit of a chance. Um, but yeah, not to be.
1: Yeah, heartbreaking stuff for Norwich. Oginegalo, by the way, who uh, opened the scoring in this game, remarkable statistic, he has now found the net in all four of his starts for Man United. He's only the second player in their history to manage that, the first being a certain James Hansen, back in 1925. Right, that was the action at Carrow Road. Newcastle Man City went pretty much the way we expected. Lots of opportunities for people to make jokes about Cher's name after he... Had a moment of sheer idiocy, Tom, if you like, to open the doors to Man City?
3: Yeah, I mean, I went for the obvious. I bet he wishes he could turn back time. It was it was right. a very curious foul to give away for the penalty. He just very blatantly pushed Gabriel Jesus, both hands on the back. Um, and you sort of felt... Newcastle were very transparently you know, almost playing for penalties from kickoff. They went for that 5-4-1 formation that, that Steve Bruce has used on occasion this season and used with success. If you look at the some of the wins they've had, you know, Tottenham, Chelsea, Man United. But then as soon as City got in front, you knew that was that. And then they had that one chance through Dwight Gale that he blazed over the crossbar and within minutes it's 2-0 and, and that's that.
2: And again... Man City showed incredible pace, and uh, I'm curious to see the semifinals because, uh, regarding Arsenal City, I just I'm very curious to see what Arsenal has learned from from the previous fixture because City was just so much better. And United and Chelsea is just two teams that are really evolving and and showing uh, how 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 much they could benefit from a title this season. Because uh, Ole said uh, that after the match, uh, clearly that uh, this group, they need a title and that would really help them in this build-up uh, that they have been experiencing this season. And Chelsea the same, because it's the, the first year with Frank Lampard and the young players. So both teams would really benefit from uh, winning the FA Cup in terms of morale, in terms of, of maturity. So yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting.
0: One of the city players who has really disappointed me since football returned has been Gabriel Jesus, who now, with Agüero's injury, probably starts most games for City unless unless Pep goes for this kind of strikeless formation. Given that Natalie's on the show, I wondered at kind of how he's seen as Brazil because it just doesn't feel like he's kicked on at all, does it?
2: Yeah, I, I agree with you. Actually, I I always have the impression that Gabriel he's not. Uh... As comfortable uh, playing as a, a, a center forward, then he is playing uh, open uh, as a winger, and he talks about that. But what City needs now is a striker, and they need a center forward. And he had time to adapt and to improve, and he improved in a lot of ways. But I don't think that he can uh, reach his peak uh, playing as a center forward, and and maybe that's something that that City w- will have to deal with.
1: Well, the other FA Cup quarterfinal was, of course, the uh, the fixture at Bramall Lane as Sheffield United took on Arsenal. Chris Wilder bringing blades to a fight with Gunners, you, you might say. Arsenal going through in a 2-1 win, but uh, there were one or two scares along the way. Eventually, it was a, a wonderful goal, actually, from Danny Danny So, only the second goal he scored in this lone spell from Real Madrid that saw Arteta's team put their place in the quarterfinals. And arguably, that keeps their season alive, no? Because is this their their one chance of a, a place in Europe, for example, or indeed a, a trophy?
4: Yeah,
2: it wasn't very inspiring in terms of performance, neither for Arsenal or, she- or even Sheffield United. They had a couple of good chances on second half. Arsenal, at times, they, they looked sloppy Made some mistakes. Kolasinac made a mistake on on Sheffield United uh, goal. Actually, that was the first goal they scored since the restart. Sheffield United, Arsenal still looks very fragile with the set pieces, uh, and we've been seeing that for a while now with Unai and with Wenger and now with Arteta. So I, I'm I'm just wondering. Is it uh, right recruitment? Because I'm not sure that three different managers couldn't fix uh, this problem that is uh, set pieces. It's just, they just look very fragile and that's something that they really need to work on.
1: Well, Natalie, one of the recruitment questions that, that's been widely discussed this week is the fact that they've just given a new deal to David Louise which is an interesting bit of timing after his last performance in the, in the Premier League. You obviously know David well uh, and can probably tell us what his reaction's been Can, Can you see a logic to this that has escaped perhaps some other people?
2: David has a very strong personality, and I think they really value that uh, in Arsenal, this leadership. At times, in this season, in the past season, there was a lack of leadership in the dressing room for Arsenal. And when they signed David, I think they were hoping that he would address this problem as well. Not only the defending and uh, all the problems that Arsenal had in the defensive side, but the, the, the leadership as well. And Arteta really likes him, and he's been enjoying Working with Arteta a lot, so I think they they decided to to give him another year uh, because of his personality, because of uh, how much he can offer to the team as a leader as well. And I know that he wanted to stay. He he's been enjoying uh, playing for Arsenal, but. Of course, uh, I know there were fans who were against it and I, I completely mm. understand that. But there is this other side and, of course, the 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 fact that Arsenal's been struggling financially as well. So it was convenient.
1: Well, that makes some sense. As for Sheffield United, they did almost get another goal, when Dean Henderson punted the ball upfield and it almost caught Martinez out. David Young says, I want some appreciation for Chris Wilder shouting, try that again after Henderson almost accidentally hit the bar with a kick out of his hands. Uh, Yes. I don't know what they give this goalkeeper to eat, but he kicks it out of the stadium, said Mustafi, about Dean Henderson. Sheffield United, they're another team whose restart has been, or whose season has been a little bit derailed by lockdown. Is that because, what, the intensity has just dissipated or, or is there some other reason there?
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, you look at the results since they came out of lockdown Four games of that a win and the table as it was during the the break had Sheffield United in that group of teams along with Wolves and Manchester United who you thought, well, you know, if they they hit the ground running, they might even be looking at a top five, maybe even squeezing into the Champions League. Whereas seeing how things have gone, um, you know, they're now down in eighth. Uh, they're only two points above Burnley, who are in 11th. And th- the way things are going for them at the moment, you you can see them slipping down the table, sadly, because I I, I think that they do seem to have lost some of the momentum. Um, I think that it, it's almost been the nature of the defeats more than just the, the defeats themselves. I mean, 3-0 away at Newcastle, then 3-0 at Manchester United. We weren't used to seeing Sheffield United capitulate in that way. Um, and they were... they I mean, I, they gave a much better account of themselves against Arsenal. Uh, they were quite unlucky... Couple of goals ruled out for offside, um, You know, got themselves back into the game right at the end, albeit uh, a bit fortuitously. Um, only to then shoot themselves in the foot uh, in stoppage time. And you know, Dean Henderson rightly has had all sorts of praise this season. Uh, I, I thought he was partly at fault with the goal. I'm not sure he necessarily needed to to rush from his line in the way that he did. I think he was reacting to the fact that. Ender Stevens was kind of drawn inside by Pepe's movement and that allowed Ceballos to nip into the space behind him. There were no defenders there and, and rather than just sort of staying where he was, Henderson forced the issue and, and allowed Ceballos to to knock the ball in. And and it was interesting listening to Chris Wilder before the game saying how, how buoyant the mood had been, you know, around the camp and how how up for it the players had looked, and he really felt that they'd sort of cleared their heads. So yeah, uh, uh, unfortunate for them to lose in in those circumstances. And yeah, I think unless unless they can kind of get back into that rhythm that they had pre-lockdown, you, you can see them starting to slide down the Premier League table.
2: And they need to sort out their problems really quickly because Sheffield United still has Spurs, Wolves, Chelsea, Leicester and Everton to face. So it's going to be hard for them.
0: On Arsenal, I think one of the most interesting things was someone who wasn't there and this new age of, of nine substitutions on the bench and five available really lays bare those players who have been left out. And Matteo Guendouzi was was left out of the matchday squad for the second game in a row in two competitions now. And with all respect to to Zach Medley and Matt Smith, who made the bench, Guendouzi would consider himself above them in the, in the pecking order and clearly suggests that Mikel Arteta has, well, I think probably lost patience with him. You know, he, he seems to have brought Granite Jacker back into the fold, but it looks like Guendouzi has, has burnt some bridges at Arsenal. It wouldn't be a huge surprise to see him Sold in the summer if they could get a decent fee I, I think that tempestuousness is just a little bit too much it doesn't really fit what Arteta wants to see on the pitch and you know they played Granite Xhaka in front of the the three-man defence which meant they could have two energetic midfielders in in Bakaya Saka and Joe Willett kind of going box to box and that isn't really Guendouzi's game and you worry for him now because as I say Danny Sabaya scored the goal he's another option there it's hard to see pretty quickly how Guenduzi comes back into the fold because we all were told that Arteta would use this period to basically get his squad ready for next season and kind of get his plan ready. And at the moment, Guenduzi doesn't look to be part of that plan.
3: Just lastly on Arsenal, I thought uh, Nicola Pepe had another quite positive afternoon. Um, I mean, we all remember that the fanfare there was when he came in last summer, that massive seventy-two million pound price tag, and he. He, he didn't uh, hit the ground running and uh, you know there was a feeling that this was potentially a transfer flop. but I, I think he he's actually been improving steadily. I think Arteta likes him. Um, he scored the penalty. Uh, I think he was probably Arsenal's most dangerous player. Uh, he's now eight goals and eight assists for the season, which is not seventy-two million pounds worth of goals and assists, but it's not it's not a complete write-off of a season. You think back to I don't know, like Robert Pires, for example, his first season at Arsenal. Plenty of people wrote him off in you know within the next two years. He was the best midfielder in the country, um, and I also I also wonder with Pepe whether this the system that Arsenal played today suits him particularly well because Arsenal uh, matched Sheffield United's shape, so they played with a back three and with wing backs, and I think when Pepe has a wing-back behind him. He knows that he doesn't need to be responsible for providing width on his flank. Sometimes the problem is that he spends too much time close to the touchline. He's too far away from the penalty area. He's too far away from his teammates in the attacking positions. Whereas today, he was able to play infield a lot more. I thought he linked up nicely with Lacazette. He linked up nicely with Joe Willock, who was bringing him into the game. He was getting shots away. He's got a fantastic shot on him. And, and I think there are, there are signs maybe that although he, he looked like a bit of a flop for the first part of the season, I, I think he might be on the way to finding his feet and, and maybe there is some hope there that he's really going to, you know, do something spectacular next season.
1: Mm, all right. And there was lots of love as well, uh, similarly, for Kieran Tierney, uh, particularly for the way he arrived at the stadium with everyone clutching their their uh, wash bags and he had a, a Tesco shopping bag, which
3: is nice. Pleasingly sort of old school. And I think it also reflects the, the kind of Player he is as well. Um, if this isn't too much of a stretch, but you, you looked at the way that Arsenal conceded their goal, another calamitous defensive mistake, and they all look around at each other, aghast. And when you speak to uh, Arsenal's defenders of the past, of the George Graham era, or you know players who played under Wenger. In the early years, at least, they all talk about how there was this this desperate desire not to concede. And it was a real kind of point of personal pride, keeping clean sheets. And I think you look at the tenacity that Kieran Tierney plays with. Um, that's something that Arsenal badly need. Um, and, you know, him turning up with a, a Tesco bag for life with all his stuff in rather than a Louis Vuitton wash bag is, is quite a nice metaphor for his approach to the game. And, and perhaps it's an approach that Arsenal are, are crying out for
2: I just like that he doesn't care about it, you know, I I love when when you see football players who are are just not concerned about these things.
3: Shades of Harry Maguire turning up for England duty with everything in a massive bin bag, like he was turning up for Freshers' (laughs) Week uh, or something. Deforestation is real and it's an issue that's affecting North London. Did you know an
1: area the size of a football pitch is being destroyed twice a week by Arsenal's defence? That's right. Hector Bellerin has pledged to donate 3,000 trees for every game Arsenal win. But Arsenal can't defend their own goal, let alone the planet. That's why Paddy Power are donating not 3,000, but 6,000 trees every time Arsenal don't win. <laughs> Seems more likely. So come on, Arsenal. If you can't bring home the three points, let us bring home the tree points. Paddy Power. 18plusbegambledaware.org Listeners, it's time to talk about shaving. It's time to talk about Harry's. Just because I've been rocking a beard since the mid-90s doesn't mean I don't need to get my shave on. My neck and upper cheek always need attention. The good news is Harry's Cucumber and Aloe Shave Gel lathers into a luxurious foam, allowing their precision-engineered blades to glide across your face, making you look smooth and handsome. What's more, Harry's razors have a non-slip handle with a textured grip, more Alison Becker, say, than Loris carriers. So if you're fed up with overpriced razors why not get yourself a harry's trial set sent right to your door for just three pounds ninety five it's got everything you need for a close comfortable shave that aforementioned handle in your choice of blue orange or green a five blade razor cartridge with a lubricating strip a trimmer blade that rich lathering shave gel and a travel blade cover all you have to do is head to harrys.com slash totally football that's harrys.com slash totally football
4: You're listening to The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. The Totally Football Show is now partnered with The Athletic,
1: where you can access the work of some of the greatest football writers on the planet and you can customise your feed for the teams and leagues that matter to you. If you're not yet signed up to The Athletic, head to theathletic.com slash totally to get a free 30-day trial. Right, June 29th, everyone, in a regular non-bizarro world year, uh, we'd be getting to the sharp end of a big tourney right about now. There's been loads of finals on the 29th of June. Here's one for you, Natalie.
2: Yes, the king, o he.
1: Pelé. That was Brazil's fifth goal in their 5-2 triumph in the 1958 World Cup final. Over Sweden, he was 17.
2: He was 17, yes. It was his first World Cup, so yeah, he was 17.
1: Amazing. Other finals on this day include the World Cup final in 1986 when Argentina beat West Germany 3-2. And of course in 2008, the final of the Euros when Spain beat Germany 1-0, ushering in their decade of dominion. England, you say? Well, yes, of course, there's been something big on June 29th for England as well. Uh, This time from the 1950 World Cup, when England uh, made their debut at the tournament and uh, sported a a lineup which included some of the greatest players in English history Stanley Matthews, of course, Stan Mortensen, Tom Finney. Uh, They took on on June 29th an amateur USA side in uh, Belo Horizonte, in Minas Gerais. Nice Uh,
2: pronunciation.
1: Thank you so much, Natalie. Stanley Matthews wasn't playing in this game as they took on a USA team who had lost their previous seven matches with an aggregate score of 45 goals against and 2-4. A USA team that was made up entirely of amateurs, which what included a mailman, yeah, a mailman, a paint stripper, a dishwasher, and a hearse driver. They were 500-1 to to get the victory and, of course, that's what happened. They beat England 1-0. Goal by a dishwasher from a New York restaurant, Uh, by the name of Joseph Gachins. And they made a movie of it as well called Game of Their Lives. No, Game of Our Lives. Sounds like this.
0: You know, there's not a single person out there in those stands who knows who we are. Most people don't even think we belong here. But we are here. We're about to go out there and play the best team in the world.
1: Brilliant. Patrick Stewart's in it. Also Gerald Butler.
3: Boom. It's also six years to the day uh, since James Rodriguez scored his famous volley for Colombia against Uruguay uh, at the 2014 World Cup at the Maracanã. Can I name and shame two people who were in the stadium but inexplicably missed the goal when it went in? One of them is Jack Lang of this parish, who I think was too busy on Twitter uh, another was Simon Peach, uh, chief football writer at the Press Association, who I know listens to the show and I know particularly loves me reminding him about the fact he missed a goal. So shout-out to both of those.
1: Did you see it, Natalie?
2: I wasn't there, but I, I saw it on TV. I was in Sao Paulo at the time.
3: Okay.
1: Was that yeah. the same game that the massive insect landed on him? Was it that game?
3: Ah, um... Yeah, I maybe. Think, mm, or was it? Or was it the massive insect? The game against Brazil in the next round. Possibly so.
1: Yeah. Possibly so.
0: That was the age where Twitter accounts would be started by anything that appeared on TV. So you had a thousand at how much would we Rodriguez moth on Twitter accounts.
1: It was an extraordinary, extraordinary insect. So no surprise that it was able to run a social media account. Well, anyway, twenty ninth of June, twenty twenty we'll see something almost as exciting. Uh, Crystal Palace taking on Burnley Monday night. We'll be talking about that and the other league games coming up this week after this.
4: You're listening to the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Jimenez. Johnny's continued his run here to the edge of the box, trying to tee it up. Then Donker on his left foot. Oh, what a goal! Leander Dendonka finds the bottom corner. The brilliant Belgian gives Wolves the lead at Villa Park on Derby Day.
1: Premier League, everybody. Two games played since our last show. We've got another five on the way midweek. The two games played so far, actually, uh, continuing a worrying trend for the sides at the bottom. Since the restart, the bottom five in the Premier League have taken just three points from their combined 13 matches. So that's three points from a potential... 39. Villa, for example, uh, losing against Wolves. Uh, Wolves, who are now just two points off the top four and have won three out of three since the restart without conceding a goal. They have come roaring in. Or are they actually playing that well, given that they've had their results against West Ham, Bournemouth and Villa and are only managing one or two efforts on goal per match at the moment?
2: So we keep talking about Adama Traore and Raul Jimenez. And and we are right to talk about these players because they're very important, even when they don't score uh, because of the the way that they smartly move. But since early February in the Premier League, uh, Wolves has seven clean sheets in eight matches, only two goals, uh, both against uh, Spurs. So we have to praise their defensive uh, strength in 2020, especially.
0: They just seem to find a a way of winning. You're right to point out the teams they've played because Villa, for example, looked absolutely toothless. Um, There doesn't seem to be, perhaps other than Manchester City and Liverpool, there don't seem to be many more bleak teams to face than Wolves when you fall behind because they just seem to have so much Premier League know-how, which is extraordinary when you consider the number of players they've recruited from abroad and kind of collated together under this George Mendes umbrella. There seems to be such a team spirit there, which is all credit to Nuno, because, as I say, they ju- they just seem to-, to tick out games that they are leading in 1-0 or 2-0. And just don't give it their opponents a sniff. Villa, you know, Grealish in particular, looked so frustrated every time they went forward. It just means teams have to try and look really direct. And then Willy Bolly and Connor Coney just mop everything up that that comes at them. They are... A really, really horrible team to play against.
2: Mm.
4: As
1: for Villa, Dean Smith pointing to the fixture congestion they've been suffering. Fourth game that was in the last 11 days. But their form is very worrying. No, one goal scored in the four matches they've had since the restart. They've got the worst defence in the division. Uh, who have they got up next? Oh, it's Champions Liverpool.
3: Yeah, it, it looks bleak for Villa. And I think the goal scoring issue was a big one. I mean, they, they went for it against Wolves. They had uh, sort of a 4-3-1-2 system. Jack Grealish in the kind of free number 10 role that he loves um, with Mbouane um, Samata and, and Keenan Davis up front. And and yet they didn't create anything. Uh, they just looked so toothless, Villa. And, and yeah, as you say, Liverpool away next. Um, and the rest of their running is, is pretty tricky as well. At home to Man United, at home to Crystal Palace away at Everton home to Arsenal and away at West Ham and you, they, they need to probably win at least you'd say three of those to stand a chance of staying in upper division and I think that you know, given that they've they've only managed to pick up two points since the restart, I, I don't think you'd you'd really back them to to get much out of that run of fixtures. Um, you know, you you look at the bottom of the table, and there are well there are four teams there within one point of each other: Watford, West Ham, Bournemouth, Villa. If we assume that Norwich have now basically been been terminally cut adrift, but the way that Villa are playing and the teams they've got to come up against, I'm not too optimistic about their chances of uh, of hanging in there.
0: Very very quickly on Grealish, they were right to change the system to try and get more out of him, but it didn't really work. He, he's creating chances still, but they see, he seems to be operating much deeper and having to, drop, to pick up the ball. I, I had a look at it and in, in his six league games before the suspension, he had 33 touches of the ball in the opposition penalty area and he's only managed seven in four games since which suggests that although he's still having a lot of the ball, he's just not really doing it in areas that the opposition mind. They're kind of closing him down and fouling him 45 yards from goal rather than 15 yards from goal. And that seems to be a real problem for Villa.
2: You need to rely in good moments from Grealish and and that's it because uh, Villa doesn't seem to show anything too different from what they showed before the break and that that is why I think uh, uh, Villa fans should be concerned. It was only one shot on target against Wolves so for a team that's fighting against relegation they're just not doing enough.
1: Mm, And stories beginning to circulate now about uh, Dean Smith's future at the club which would be a, a tremendously sad way for what was his dream season being up in the Premier League with his boyhood club. Uh, it would be a tremendous way for that to pan out. All right, well, uh, Watford are down in that mix, particularly after losing to Southampton 3-1 at Vicarage Road. Watford, of course, fielding a team that was without Andre Gray, uh, Nate Chalabar and Domingos Kenya, after Gray had had 20 people round for his birthday on Friday, contravening lockdown rules and those other players amongst them. Um... I test banter moment, etc. But it it can't have helped. It can't have helped. Would they have made a difference? Saints were in cracking form here, particularly Danny Ings, eighteen goals now. Only Vardy's mm. scored more goals.
0: No player other than him has scored more than thirteen in the bottom half, which suggests he's leading his team in a kind of Wilfred Zahares pied piper march. And it is pretty much Ings' stick at the moment at Southampton. In terms of Watford, you know that Pearson feel good factor is dropped away really really quickly. They went unbeaten in seven in all comps before the break, but they've lost seven of the last 10 and you know, you speak to any Watford fan on Monday morning and they will be incredibly glum because you know, it's only the form of those sides around them Bournemouth, Villa, West Ham that's that's even keeping them in touch.
2: Yeah, Watford won just one of their last Ten Premier League matches, and the 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 only victory was against Liverpool. So, I don't know. I I was deceived because I thought what for after that, after the, the the win against Liverpool, they would they would really show something different and they would go back to their form. Right when uh, Nigel Pearson arrived, and that didn't happen.
1: Absolutely, and that battling draw against Leicester late on as well. It suggested that things were there, ready to just potentially, you know, spark a, a march back up the table. Here's a stat. Uh, for you. Uh, Watford are the only Premier League team yet to score from outside the box this season. They've attempted 121 shots from outside the area. None of them have found the net. Remarkable. Well, five more games on the way this week. Monday I mentioned before it's Palace against Burnley. Palace have actually won their last four games against the Clarets in Premier League. Then on Tuesday you've got Brighton against Man United. Man United have lost their last three trips to Brighton. One of those was years and years ago, back in the 80s. But the the two games they've had at the Amex in the Premier League, they've lost both of them. And then on Wednesday, big games for that collection of teams down the bottom. Norwich are going to be at Arsenal. Uh, Bournemouth are taking on Newcastle. Everton are up against Leicester. And West Ham face Chelsea. That looks like a big fixture. Chelsea under pressure for their top four spot, but on a real roll at the moment, as we've already heard, but it, intriguingly, they as well have a poor record away to West Ham. They've failed to score in their last two visits there. And last time these two teams met at Stamford Bridge earlier this season, it was Aaron Cresswell who won the game with a pretty special strike. Cresswell cuts inside. West Ham United season. What are the odds of a West Ham team who since the restart have had two 2-0 defeats who've basically yet to score, have lost their last three Premier League games, an aggregate score of none, four and five against. What are the odds of them derailing Frank Lampard's side on Wednesday?
5: Mm,
2: very slim. Uh, I was at the Olympic Stadium for West Ham and Wolves and we, we were hoping that uh, since the atmosphere at the, the Olympic Stadium was so... Uh, wasn't good this season, that, that they could respond better. They, they would be one of those teams who could benefit with the, the empty stadiums, but that really did not happen. And uh, there were changes in the team uh, during these these first matches, ever since the restart. And you just don't see... West Ham, for me, is a big mystery, because they have very high-quality players up front, especially even Felipe Anderson. Uh, who's uh, a player that I've, I've been following more closely, uh, he dropped form drastically this, this season and it just seems to be lacking confidence. And I don't see how they are going to rescue this confidence against a team like Chelsea, who has been performing really well, especially if you look at the match against City. And I, I don't see it happening for West Ham. I don't know. I, if, if I was a West Ham fan, I, I would be worried about the level of performance that they, they've been showing.
0: And this is this is supposed to be David Moyes's his thing. It's that he can motivate players to be greater than the sum of their parts through adversity and kind of establish this battling spirit that he you know he made his name for as a manager at, at Everton. And we just haven't seen it in either West Ham spell. Really, um, he looked broken. He looked broken on the touchline against Wolves. He looks out of ideas already, which coming out of a three-month spell in which he knew where his team was and he knew he had better options at his disposal than any other manager in the bottom six. is It's worrying for, for not just his time at West Ham, which I think will probably come to another end this summer, but it's also worrying for his reputation as a manager because if this goes as south as it looks like it will do, he's surely going to struggle to get a Premier League job as his next gig.
1: Mm, well, you'd be surprised. West Ham currently outside the bottom three on goal difference, but Watford's defeat... Uh, means that uh, all those other sides down there do have a chance to move past the Hornets if they could get a point or perhaps three. Brighton, are they out of that particular struggle? They're up to 33 points, six clear of the bottom three. They're unbeaten in their last three Premier League matches. They've had two clean sheets in those games as well and they've got Man United coming as well. Before we wrap up on the Premier League, what do you think? Could Brighton have another victory against the Red Devils there at the Amex?
3: I mean, I think that that little five-point cushion that they've got over the teams below them, um, if if they can add another couple of wins to that, um, they should be safe. Um, You look at some of the teams they've got coming up, they've got to go to Norwich, um they're at home to Newcastle on the penultimate day, they're away at Burnley on the last day. You know, they've also got some tricky home games, United, as you mentioned, Liverpool and Man City. Um but there you know that there, there has been uh, there has been a bit of steel about Brighton since uh you know since the restart, obviously getting that win over Arsenal in the first game back and then um holding Leicester to that draw at um at the King Power when they, they squandered a penalty early on. So, yeah, they feel like they've got a bit of momentum behind them. Um, you know, they've sort of come out of lockdown looking in, in decent nick. So, yeah, another another couple of wins and they should be OK.
1: Natalie, do you think the Man United will be looking forward to their trip to the seaside, which is a a, a popular pastime, of course, at the moment?
2: I think so, and I'll be looking forward, actually. <laughs> Because Man United is the most exciting thing that's been happening in the Premier League ever since the restart, in my opinion. Okay. It's the it's the team that I, I've been enjoying the most to see because you see something happening there. You see the links happening, and it's more exciting to watch, and the players look more confident, and the team is building up on confidence. So, uh, Martial has been in a great form, Rashford is back, you have Bruno Fernandes and Pogba. So, I'm really looking forward to see uh, where United will be in the last match of this season, because that will influence how they will be in the next season, and I think they can really challenge for bigger things uh, next season if they do the right recruitment and if they keep building up this confidence and they have a very clear project. And I think that they can really benefit from this uh, last round of matches uh, in the Premier League and, and can be much stronger next season. So United's been exciting.
0: One uh, one player who hasn't featured much for Manchester United and there's a Brighton link here is, is Jesse Lingard. And he went on loan to Brighton when they are in the Championship at the start of his career and There are rumours this week that Brighton will try and get him on loan again for, for the whole of next season, which would be a, with no disrespect to Brighton, at which point I begin disrespecting them. It's a heck of a fall from a guy who was scoring World Cup goals for England, you know, only two years ago.
1: Well, there you go. Those are the fixtures, taking you up to Wednesday night. Of course, then Thursday evening, there's that whopping clash between the champions of the past two Premier League seasons and the soon-to-be champions, or in fact they are now mathematically champions, Liverpool. And that's going to be a big one at the Etihad. Uh, But we'll be back with, uh, well, actually a couple of Totally Football shows before that, because not only will we be here on Thursday morning to uh, build up to that game, but also on Tuesday we are going to be returning with a European edition again, asking such huge questions as, did you see the incredible... Touch from Santi Cazorla to set up uh, Gerard Moreno in the Vilval game in La Liga. Woof. Uh, is the title race over in Spain? Have Juve and Barca really swapped Artur and Pjanic uh, just to keep their accountants happy? And how gutted are French fans that everyone else is having football and they're not? Tom, what's the situation with Ligue 1 and French football? Having finished so early, what's the mood and how are their preparations for
3: the next season? All but two of the clubs are back in pre-season training. They're setting out their um, their pre-season plans. Uh, Leon arrived in Evian today for a little pre-season training camp, and a friendly fixtures being announced. Um, you well, know, when are they actually the going to start? Do you
1: know, Tom? Well, when the, are they actually going to start? The
3: way the way it looks is that the league will be the first of the big European leagues to start next season, because whereas all the other leagues that are currently playing out. Twenty nineteen twenty won't be able to um, get back in action until September. That the mooted start date for league is the penultimate weekend in August. Um, so there should be a brief moment when, like the Bundesliga, resuming before all the other leagues. The eyes of the footballing world will be on Liga, which which would make for a change. Um, but yeah, a pretty a pretty forgettable few weeks. I mean, it's still rumbling on. Um, French Football Federation this week has validated. Uh, the statutes for next season, so that there will only be twenty teams in the top flight. Toulouse, who were one of the two teams relegated, along with Amiens, have officially given up the ghost and accepted it. Amiens going back to the French courts to see if there's any way that they, they can get next season expanded. So it is still kind of it's dragging on a little bit, but generally speaking, you know, people are sort of moving forward and, and looking ahead to next season. Sorry, there'll only be 20 teams next season,
1: but there are 20 teams anyway, aren't there in Ligue 1?
3: Yes, yeah, so there are 20 teams, but um, Amiens, Toulouse will be replaced by Lens and Lorient, who were the top two right. in Ligue 2, and what Amiens right. and Toulouse have asked for is for the league to be expanded to 22 clubs ah, to 22, so that right. they uh, don't get relegated, but that uh, yeah. is not going to happen. Sadly, That's for a them. shame, isn't it? Natalie,
1: what's the situation in Brazil, dare I ask, where they're about to get the season back under, or at least get the season underway after a couple of months of delay.
2: Oh, my God. It's completely chaos in Brazil. They need to finish the state championships first because uh, there is the state championship that is shorter, but they need to finish. And each, each state has the power to determine when football is going back. And obviously, the states are in very different situations regarding the pandemic. And besides that, the Brazilian FA suggested a date to start the Brazilian National League. That was 9th of August. And many teams in Brazil, they think it's too early because most state championships haven't restarted and they consider that there's a difference in preparation. For example, Flamengo is already playing, so he, he would have an advantage when the, the National League restarts. At the same time, the Brazilian FA needs to have enough space in the calendar to finish the, the, the league that has 20 teams, so it's it's a long league. And adding up to all of this, Brazil is facing the peak of the pandemic and it's absurd that we are speaking about uh, playing football in the middle of the peak of the pandemic. And there's the the political crisis uh, with the government that doesn't take the virus seriously enough and encourages many teams to to go back to training and go back to playing. So it's completely chaos in Brazil.
1: So Bolsonaro has really been pushing for football to return. Is it, I mean, apart from his own enjoyment of the game, is it also because it's politically embarrassing for a, a, a figure who has denied the impact of the crisis to see football suspended it it was such an important pastime suspended in his country where whereas around the world it's actually been picked up again
2: Yes, and it's it's very related to the economic side of things. So he needs the economy running and football gives this sense of normality to everyone. And he actually met with uh, the presidents from Flamengo and from Vasco and other teams in Rio, they refused to, to play and they, they, they were obligated to play. So it, it's just, it's completely chaos and it's political and it's uh, in the sporting side as well. So it's, it's a huge problem and there's no perspective of, of things improving because there's not a strict lockdown. Things are not better in terms of, of the, the health uh, side of things. We don't have a, a health minister at the moment uh, because he fired both of them. So it's it's just complete chaos in, in Brazil regarding everything, like life and football. Everything is just chaotic.
1: I was going to ask you if you think the football is going to get restarted, but it, it's kind of the, the, the least of the questions at this point. Well, uh, fingers yeah. crossed things will... Uh, take a turn for the better. As you say, they are playing uh, state championship games, but I think only in the state of Rio de Janeiro so far. Yeah,
2: the the main ones, the the only one that that is going, that is happening, is, is Rio's, and and even uh, in Rio, many teams don't want to play. They're they're playing because they have to, and they they would have a big disadvantage. But there, there was a big argument between the 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 four main teams: Vasco and Flamengo wanted to play, Fluminense and Botafogo didn't want to play, so it was huge. Wow. Yeah.
1: Okay, we'll talk about the championship, which is underway in a moment or two. First of all,
4: though, let's drop in on Lee Price with Ben Green. Thank you very much, Jimbo. It's that part of the show, listeners, that you won't be able to hear if you listen to our ad-free version of the show on the Athletic app. It's me talking to Lee Price from Paddy Power. Lee, let's start with Liverpool. They're the champions of 2019-20. Are they going to be the champions next year as well?
5: <laughs> I don't know if I'm being stitched up here or not, but... um. I'm going to tell you the odds, but I'm not trying to burst any Liverpool fans bubble. Well done on your, your title success. You're probably due one. But we make Manchester City odds-on to win the league next season. They're 8-11. to Liverpool 2-1 to to win the title, despite it being so good this season. Yes, really. Chelsea, by the way, might be interesting. They're 9-1. to And Manchester United are 12-1 to to win the league. All right, and
4: on to this week's Premier League action, then Brighton versus Man United. Give us some numbers here, please.
5: Hmm, a tough one to know what to think, really. Like Both teams need the results. United have looked very good, whereas Brighton's results have looked slightly better than their performances, I would say. Uh, that Arsenal win was quite a turnaround, wasn't it? And it's 4-1. to one. They get another famous victory at home. Something they have got a track record of doing, as we've heard earlier. United are the favourites here, as you'd expect. They're 4-6, to six, odds on, and shortening all the time to finish in the top four. Seven to 7-5 to do that now, by the way. The draw here is five to 5-2. And I kinda of fancy that, but that's just because I'm indecisive. And what is gonna happen, Lee, when West Ham take on Chelsea? Big London Derby. Like, well, actually that sounds sarcastic, but genuinely huge London derby. West Ham have been tragic since the restart, and they really need some results. It's four to one that they get the win here. Three to one they get a draw. Chelsea have looked very, very good, and their transfer business is very ominous, I think. They're four to seven to win this one. West Ham have to get something. Isn't this the time they turn it around? Don't think so.
1: You can find out these odds and more at PaddyPower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over eighteen only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. The championship. Daniel, you wrote a lovely piece uh, saluting the return to football of Neil Warnock last week. For his is it, is it his 19th managerial role?
0: Yes, I believe so. Yeah. And at least I I think his seventh since he he said that Crystal Palace in 2007 would be his last job as well. Um, Yeah, it's nice when you write a piece like that. And then he goes and wins 2-0 away with 31% possession and a 47% passing accuracy uh, and reminds us exactly what he's so brilliant at. So yeah, it doesn't always work out like that.
1: Wow. Neil Warnock, of course, now in charge of Middlesbrough. Incredible record he's got, by the way, in terms of his debuts at new clubs. Not since 1997 has he lost his first game in charge of a club that's a run of 10 unbeaten debuts. Natalie, have you ever had the occasion to speak to? A yes, one-off.
2: I spoke to him a few times and and uh, in a season where Cardiff was relegated. So usually after defeats and he was always in the best mood, which for me was very hard to get around. But he, he was always very nice.
1: Mm. He's a, he's quite a, quite a charming character. fellow. Yeah. I mean, although with, you know, certain opinions that maybe not everybody w- would share. But he's a colourful type and football's the richer for his involvement. Leeds had a victory. They beat Fulham 3-0 on Saturday, which means, boom, they are back on top of the championship. They're eight points clear of third place with seven games to go. So surely this time nothing, well, I'm not going to even finish that sentence.
0: (laughs) No, nothing will go wrong. (laughs) <laughs> Nothing will go wrong now, he says, as a supporter of a team three places below. But no, they, they have a really gentle run of home fixtures towards the end of the season as well. So I think that probably is it, even even for Leeds.
1: Leeds could be on their way back to the Premier League for the first time in 16 years. The team you mentioned, Daniel, who are uh, three places below them, are Forrest, who climbed up to fourth place. Crikey. Is this for real as well?
0: Uh, it's good because at no point during the season, pre or post lockdown, have I considered that they're going to get promoted, but they are, I mean, they're seven points off automatic and seven points ahead of seventh, so it should be playoffs, but Nottingham Forest have never got beyond a playoff semi-final in various methods of disaster, so let's not worry too much yet.
1: Well, i will be more detail on all the weekend's events in the Championship and the rest of the Football League, in the Totally Football League show, which will be out on Wednesday with Matt Davis-Adams. As I say, uh, Totally returns on Tuesday with a special European edition, so we'll have all the uh, usual contributors for that. And loads of big things to talk about. Tom was mentioning the Bundesliga wrapped up this weekend. There's been loads of big stories in Serie A, and especially in La Liga as well. Uh, great. What are you going to be doing this week, Natalie? What, do, what, what, what have you got lined up? Have you been going to any of the these uh, empty stadiums for games?
2: I went to a couple, but now I'm not going anymore and I do everything remotely. So mm. this has been very peculiar because on post-match, you have to call a number and then you interview the player or the manager uh, via via dial-in and they just oh. listen to you and they answer to the camera. For me, it's very unusual. I, I do it from, from my living room and... Uh, Oh, it's just, it's, it's weird. It's good because we, we get to do the interviews, but it's, it's just weird.
1: So they basically have a hotline set up and various journalists then ring in with a question.
2: Yes, exactly. So you have your number, you call your number and the interviewee, he has uh, a box uh, where he listens to a speaker. The interviewee Uh has a speaker where he listens to your questions and you can listen to what he's saying. But even when you're in the stadium, you have to do this. Uh, So I was at the stadium for Spurs Man United and Ole could actually listen to what I was saying he was looking for me at the stands because he listened to, to a voice somewhere, but I couldn't be pitch side interviewing him because of the, the social distancing. So, yeah. All right.
1: He's down on the pitch and you're yes. up in the stands, yes. kind of.
2: Yes, exactly. Wow. Yeah. Wow.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, it's not what it was, but it's better than nothing. And there's loads more of it this week. Natalie and Daniel and Tom, thank you so much for being with us today. Listener, thank you as well, because without you the whole thing would have been pointless. We will return Tuesday and then again on Thursday. Make it part of your week and we'll speak to you then for now. From all of us here,
4: it's goodbye.